Chapter 1, Session 1, In the Beginning. In the beginning of my life, God created among me. He chose me for my parents and the chubby, lovable toddler that was destined as my big brother. In his infinite wisdom, he divided us and put us on separate continents. My mother and my brother planted roots in Nigeria, and my father moved to America. Nine months after her last visit to the United States, my mom gave birth to a skinny, squally, chocolate-skinned baby girl that came to be known as Wumi. That's me. My first memory, I was three years old, and an older gentleman, a family friend, bent towards me and asked, and what do you want to be when you grow up? I believe he spoke Yoruba. I didn't learn English until I was at least three. A lawyer, I replied with confidence. I must have smiled. I was a happy child, even with all the childhood sickness and illnesses. That answer set the trajectory of my life for the next 20 years, but it was only one of my beginnings. Having declared the life I wanted at the tender age of three, all of my conscious choices from then on were with my future in mind. I did well in school. From nursery school onward, I loved learning and I excelled academically. My passions, my efforts, and my results correlated perfectly. When I was 10 years old, I began anew by moving to the United States. That was also a beginning. The catalyst for my new life, new identity, and new experiences till date. When I was 11, I remember feeling that although I had a deep faith in Christ and a love for attending church, I could not recall deciding to follow the Lord. In my preteen mind, it seemed better to be safe and thus I made a public profession of faith in Christ when invited for an altar call. That too was a beginning of sorts. Prior to that profession of faith, I had endured my first encounter with abuse. The first of many, but this one at the hand of a boy who feigned a friendship with my brother. At 16, I entered my first serious relationship. That too was a beginning. I began to dabble in a teenage love, grounded in culture, and manipulated by lust, but not subject to the commands of God. For me, life began repeatedly at different points in my life. The age of 10 was also when I met my father for the first time, and I started my life as a Nigerian living in America. Prior to that time, when I was five years old, my mother left Nigeria. That too was a beginning. I lived with my uncle, Uncle Yemi, for a few years before moving in with my grandparents. Under their watchful eyes, I grew out of my innocence and into a new kind of anxiety. My family and I were victims of an armed robbery in those years. The perpetrators ransacked our living quarters and pushed our elderly neighbor down the stairs. The memory of that night, the terror of it all, stayed with me 
a large part of my memory of that experience was my five-year-old brain repeating the thought that such a horror would never have happened had I been with my parents. Under my grandparents' care, I learned to push the bounds of childhood rebellion, a sort of revenge against loved ones who kept the best of everything, my clothes, my food, my toys, under lock and key. I witnessed several family members meander between womanizing and alcoholism, and I contemplated self-harm. The agony of being separated from my parents was overwhelming. In that same house of my father's family, I continued to excel at school. I found joy in friendship with my brother and cousins, and I experienced life in a community that believed in carrying one another's burden. I also had my first encounters with dark magic and the occult. Wealth was usually the end game, often by any means necessary. Attending our family's Methodist church faithfully did not prevent members of our extended family from consulting their favorite babalawo for answers and solutions to anything from barrenness to conflict with business partners. My family tried to shield me from most of it, but at eight years old, I was too old to be oblivious to the happenings in our house. Strangely enough, I was never afraid of the darkness that hid in various off-limits locations of our duplex. Perhaps even then, I knew that the Jesus I knew from church and the God of my Bible stories were greater than these little powers of which my family members were so fond. I have never been fascinated with the occult. The devil has never been appealing to me. I can thankfully say that I have always known the enemy of my soul for exactly what he is. A thief, a liar, and a murderer who stays true to his name, no matter how alluring his promises. But unfortunately for me, I did not learn until later that the enemy also comes as an angel of light. Naivete or innocence worked against me as I mistook hellish bondage for fun and demonic oppression as nothing more than youthful indiscretion. 19 years later, as I prayed on the sidelines for the ministers who were in the middle of a deliverance session for a young man in our church, I got to hear firsthand just how the enemy feels about me and other believers. He hates us. Every temptation, bondage, and sin is designed to destroy us here on earth, then end us in hell. I was never fascinated with darkness, at least not the open, obvious kind. As much as I was leery of it, after trying my hands at being a horror movie enthusiast in college and experiencing paralyzing fear and demonic attacks in the wake of those movies, I had no need to schedule any more playdates with demons. My extended family did not always know best how to protect my innocence. I don't blame them.
everyone was doing the best they could. From my parents in America, who were hustling to get us into the country by any legal means, to my grandparents, uncles, and aunts, who were trying to reclaim my grandfather's waning legacy of wealth and affluence. I knew we were loved, but sometimes I felt lost in the shuffle that was our life. Coming from a country and a family that often puts the village before the individual, we were raised to embrace our extended family. Family meant anyone that your parents entrust with your care. It could be a neighbor, a coworker, or a childhood friend. So long as the bonds of community have not been broken, everyone was welcomed. Practically everyone was family. This view of the world worked in my favor in Nigeria, at least for the most part. My parents' friends were auntie and uncle. Their children were my cousins. Even longtime neighbors and childhood friends become sisters and brothers after a decade or more. As a Nigeria in America, seeing everyone as a potential friend waiting to happen led to my first assault. That episode unraveled many of my core beliefs regarding who I was and why I mattered. And unfortunately for everyone who came into my crosshairs, and for me, the damage took decades to undo. I mourn what I lost at the age of 11 because I had no way of quantifying that loss. I had no clue that the person who robbed me of my innocence would also steal away my identity for the next 15 years of my life. Even before then, around the age of seven, I was already befriended by and close to a group of children, not much older than I, but very much sexualized. Their fascination with everything adult rated rubbed off on me. It was all they talked about and before long, it was all we could all think about. So many of these conversations were too perverse for our young minds. But such was my life. That early exposure primed me for behavior I had no initial intention of partaking in. If you had asked me then, I would have told you that I was not that kind of girl. And despite the nature of my conversations with my peers and their older siblings, I had no intention of doing anything that contradicted my Christian upbringing. I grew up with my mom in Ijebuode. When she left the country, my brother and I eventually came to Lagos. 44 Bola Street, Ibutemeta, Lagos. It was my last address before leaving for the United States, and it is likely etched in my memory forever. After my mother left the country, I spent my childhood in Lagos with my grandparents. My grandfather, a bulking tower of a man, was a man like no other that I have ever known in my life. Babawili, as he is fondly remembered, 
was a man who loved the finer things of life, especially good spirits, a good whiskey or dry gin, beautiful women, and luxurious living. He seemed 10 feet tall in my eyes, but he was more likely around six foot and no less than 300 pounds. He was solid. His skin was so black it seemed polished. His eyes dimpled when he smiled, which he did a lot. His laugh filled rooms everywhere he went. From the bar that was attached to our apartment building to the parlor of our third floor home. My grandfather was fearless and his reputation preceded him. Rumor had it in the 80s that my grandfather would sit on the balcony or porch of his home cleaning his gun collection on the days that armed robbers were rumored to be roaming the neighborhood, almost daring them to come and meet certain death. Apparently, the criminals would greet him with adulations and salutes, then pass by his home peacefully to continue their night of debauchery elsewhere. If they did not bother him, he would not bother them. My grandfather built a multi-billion Naira corporation from the ground up. He had a construction company, a car dealership, and several buildings all over Nigeria. Thanks to his sharp mind for business and my grandmother's no-nonsense demeanor, they were their generation's definition of a power couple. Iya and Baba Willie were not to be played with. They had 10 children together. My father is the third born, but the first son. And rumors of children fathered outside of their marriage would fly with each new year. I took it all in stride. I was genuinely happy under my grandparents' care. Some of the discipline that was meted out for what I would consider minor offenses, coming home late from school, playing too long with friends in the neighborhood, losing a comb that my grandmother asked me to fetch. All of these punishments felt like torture at the time, but I've come to understand them as the only means of parenting that was available to my caregivers. Everyone was doing their best. And unfortunately, many of our elders did not know much about parenting, except that any act of disobedience no matter how trivial, was to be met by corporal punishment so severe that it renders the possibility of future disobedience wholly unappealing. Beating your child, even to the point of marking up their body, was not abuse. It was parenting, and it was the only thing keeping your children from a life of waywardness, a life that would eventually lead to crime, death or disgrace, which was worse than death. I remember one afternoon while I was in primary three or four in elementary school, I went home with my best friend at the time. Her name was Tolu. Tolu's father was a teacher at our school, Salvation Army Primary School in Ibutemeta, Lagos. And he was notoriously ruthless. 
He was easily the meanest teacher at that school. Every student in his class had felt the weight of his sturdy cane on their backside at least once during the school year. The cane was the kobokobo stick, as fat and round as a human thumb, and typically around three feet long. When wielded properly, it left big welts of broken skin on any part of its victim. Tolu's dad was an expert with his weapon of choice. Visiting Tolu's house was a big risk for two reasons. If our father catches us, he would likely beat us both within an inch of our lives. Who were we to take such liberties with his house, especially without his permission? Second, if my family knew I was anywhere but school and home, I was a dead man walking. We took advantage of the fact that teachers had to stay after school long after the students were dismissed. And Tolu and I played in her house for almost half an hour. We lost track of time, and her father was entering the gates before we knew it. I quickly grabbed my bag, ran for my life out of the back entrance. I had narrowly escaped capture. Being in a teacher's house could have gotten me in trouble on three fronts. First, with Tolu's dad personally. Second, with the school if he reported it which he would have. And lastly, with my own family, when they find out. I was laughing and congratulating myself on my narrow escape as I walked through the open air market, or Oja, that was just a few miles away from my house, though nowhere near my normal route from school to home. I made it another 10 minutes before I ran into my aunt, one of my dad's youngest sisters. She also lived with our grandparents. My heart literally froze. And the feeling of dread that came over me felt like death itself had passed its shadow over my entire body. Before I could hide, our eyes met. The smile that spread across her face was slow and sinister and terrifying. She looked like a cat who had finally caught the prey that had been escaping her for months. Within moments, she packaged the okra that she was examining and stepped to another vendor to buy a long, thin cane. African-Americans would call it a switch. <laughs> I wish it was that cute. This long piece of hell on earth is typically five feet or longer and as thin as a needle at the top. When used as a tool of correction, it leaves snake-like skinny welts all over the body. Welts that burn as if you had been bathed with pepper. Some parents take the extra step of rubbing pepper all over the wounds that are left on the body after such a beating. Anything to traumatize the offender so much so that repeating the disobedient act would be out of the question for as long as he or she lived. I knew I was in for a world of pain and my tears began even before my aunt reached me. She beat me for the length of our three mile journey home. When we returned home, she recounted my misdeeds to my grandparents 
and I was on punishment until the end of time. Realistically, it was probably a week. This concludes Memoirs, Chapter 1, Session 1. We will reconvene to begin Session 2 of Chapter 1 the next time.